This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. In sharp contrast to previous public remarks, Wisconsin Senator, senior U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican, admitted that last year's presidential election was not skewed. Johnson made those remarks at a Republican event last weekend, the Chicken Burn, a late summer conservative gathering held in Wauwatosa. While there, he remarked to an undercover liberal activist, posing as a conservative activist, that there's obviously nothing skewed about last year's election results in the presidential race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. The exchange was first released by The Undercurrent, a group aligned with Democrats. Johnson goes on to state the former president lost the state due to write-in votes for other Republican candidates. New reporting from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel finds that Fred Prane, leader of the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources Policy Board, consulted with top Republican officials about staying on the panel after his term expired. The Journal Sentinel obtained emails showing that Crane asked for advice from an aide to state Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu and U.S. Representative Tom Tiffany, both Republicans, as well as other lobbyists. Crane, an appointee of former Governor Scott Walker, has refused to step down to make way for Sandra Noss, who was appointed by Governor Tony Evers. Crane has insisted that he doesn't need to step down from his seat until Noss is confirmed by the legislature, but the Republican-controlled legislature has not initiated a confirmation vote. If Noss was appointed, Evers' appointees would have majority control of the DNR policy board. A newly elected Dane County supervisor wants to pause the county's indoor mask mandate, reports the Capital Times. Supervisor Jeff Wigand, who was elected to the Dane County Board in a special election earlier this month, wants to halt the order until it's had input from elected leaders and members of the public. Public health officials say Wisconsin state statute gives Public Health Madison and Dane County the authority to issue the mask mandate in order to prevent spread of disease. But the Public Health Department has been the recipient of several lawsuits claiming that they do not have that authority. Earlier this week, the Wisconsin Supreme Court declined to directly consider a lawsuit that sought to block Dane County's mask mandate. That lawsuit was brought by the conservative Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. The indoor mask mandate is set to expire in mid-September, but another order could extend it into the future. The Madison City Council is slated to meet tonight at 6.30. One item on the agenda, an appeal to stop the relocation of Capitol High School, one of the Madison School District's alternative high schools, to the Hoyt School Building on Regent Street. The plan to relocate has already been given the final okay by the city's plan commission. If approved, it would allow Capitol High students to attend school at one building rather than at three different sites across the city. Twelve residents who live close to the Hoyt School Building and don't support the plan say that enjoyment of other property in the neighborhood would be diminished and that traffic impacts have not been thoroughly considered. If the proposal to relocate moves forward, Capitol High School will move into the Hoyt School Building on Regent by next summer. A fire at a Madison Kip Corporation plant on Atwood Avenue temporarily caused a dip in air quality yesterday. According to data from Community Air Monitors, fine particle pollution in the area near the plant spiked while the fire was ongoing. Pollution in the area has since returned to a more acceptable level. This fire, which occurred last night around 9 p.m., 
caused an estimated $245,000 in damage, reports WISC-TV. It also caused the temporary closure of Atwood Avenue, reports NBC-15. Wisconsin's rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases continues to climb. According to the state's Department of Health Services, the average COVID case rate currently stands at 1,667 new cases per day. Almost 3 million Wisconsinites have been fully vaccinated against the coronavirus. That's about 51.4% of the state's total population. And now on to today's top stories. Last night, the Madison School Board voted to mandate COVID-19 vaccines for district employees. But this plan won't be ready before students return to class. WORT reporter Nate Weggehout has the details. The Madison School Board voted in a special meeting last night to begin drafting a vaccine mandate for all Madison School District staff. The decision comes just a few days before Madison Metro School Board students begin returning to class this Thursday. But the rollout of the mandate will take effect weeks after school has been in session, at the earliest. District administrators are set to finish their writing plan by September 20th, with a final vote on the mandate tentatively set for September 27th. The policy, similar to other vaccine mandates, would call for all employees to show proof of their vaccination status, with those who are not vaccinated being required to take regular COVID tests. The mandate comes after Democratic state legislators wrote an open letter to the Madison Metropolitan School Board, calling them to, quote, swiftly enact a policy of mandatory vaccination for all adults in Madison Metro School District facilities. Last night's meeting was largely spent discussing what would happen to employees who are unable to get vaccinated for health or religious reasons. Some board members also took issue with the specific wording of the policy. School board member Ananda Marilli said the board needed to draw a clear distinction between a mandate and a recommendation. I have a a couple of comments in regards to to the language that we're using around making something mandatory and making something a recommendation. Right now, our teachers are already recommended to have a set of vaccines. I think in the in the context that we are both politically and otherwise, language does matter. So I would like to to offer a thinking around if there is enough energy among my colleagues to to potentially review that language and then to make a recommended for our staff. Child cases of COVID-19 continue to rise across the state. Preliminary data from the State Department of Health Services indicate that COVID-19 infections among those under the age of 18 are at their highest point since January. Ahead of yesterday's board meeting, Madison Teachers Incorporated, the union representing Madison's teachers, lent its support to a system-wide employee vaccine mandate. And on Friday, Madison School District Superintendent Carlton Jenkins held a press conference calling for a vaccine mandate for all school district employees. We're trying to move our students back into a routine, and I hate to say normal, but normal as much as possible. And so, Wendy, thank you, because we are going to have to be number And we don't know how this is going to progress, uh, even with the Delta II variant. But for the most part, we want to get our students in and give them the best experiences possible. Currently, no school districts in Wisconsin have a COVID-19 vaccine requirement, although Milwaukee Public Schools is creating a plan similar to Madison's vaccination plan. Madison schools have already announced that, following CDC guidelines, everyone will be required to wear a mask indoors, including vaccinated individuals. 
Additionally, schools will be working to physically distance everyone in an attempt to limit the spread of COVID-19. From WORT News, I'm Nate Wegehout. It's now 6.15 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier today, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway unveiled her $355 million capital budget. This proposal and an accompanying five-year capital improvement plan guides the city's spending on infrastructure improvements and new construction projects. To unpack the spending plan, which will be introduced to the city council this evening, WORT producer Jonah Chester spoke with the mayor earlier today. So earlier today, you released your executive capital budget and capital improvement plan. Now clocking in at just north of $355 million, uh, this budget includes funding for everything from affordable housing initiatives to sustainability projects. Now, this is the second budget that will be crafted in a pandemic and hopefully the last. So with that in mind, how have federal COVID-19 relief aid dollars influenced this 2022 capital budget and the city's long-term infrastructure plans included in the capital improvement plan? You know, I think that the federal money uh, has been really critical for our budget, and I'm really grateful to President Biden and, and to Congress for making the ARPA funds available to cities all across this country. Um, here in Madison, part of the reason that you're seeing this capital budget being so much larger than previous capital budgets is because of federal funds. So we are including multiple projects that are funded by ARPA dollars and that have been approved by the council. Um, in their ARPA plan. But we're also seeing infrastructure money coming from the federal government, including the infrastructure funding for the bus rapid transit. And so we're, I think we're lucky to be receiving so much federal money and being able to put it to work in our community for the residents of Madison. Yeah, let's take a look at two or three of, of the items that are included in the budget. Talk to me, and I mentioned it a minute ago, but talk to me about the affordable housing items you've included in your proposal. From what I've read, you're proposing some $42 million to increase the supply of affordable housing here in Madison. Yeah, so it's actually, uh, if you if you add it all up, it's more than that for, for housing. There's a number of things we're doing for housing. We're putting in nearly $20 million for our consumer lending programs, and so that's the homeownership programs, down payment assistance, you know, might be lending to help do housing rehab. And these are the programs that help people either buy a home or stay in their home. And we're also putting in $42 million for the construction of affordable housing. And so this is the, the programs where we are either helping uh, affordable housing developers access the federal tax credits 
or we are working with other uh, nonprofit housing developers, perhaps the land trust, co-ops, to provide affordable housing in Madison in less traditional ways, not using tax credits necessarily. We're also including funding that will support affordable housing projects, including sustainability aspects in their construction, so that the people who live in this affordable housing have lower utility bills in the long term. And that might be a really highly energy efficient building. It might be including solar in various ways. It might be including geothermal. We think it's very important that new construction in Madison be as sustainable as possible, particularly new affordable housing. You mentioned it just a minute ago there, and I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into it, that you were looking at affordable housing and and less traditional approaches and less traditional ways. Talk to me about that a little bit more. What do you mean by less traditional? Well, you know, historically, when the city has invested money in affordable housing, we've done it almost exclusively with projects that are seeking federal tax credits. And this is these are great tools. They've been really effective in creating affordable housing in our community, but they're not the only tools. And so we are trying to expand our reach and pursue projects that might not be a good fit for tax credits but can still provide affordable housing, whether that, again, is working with a land trust to pursue an affordable homeownership model or with one of our many cooperatives uh, here, housing cooperatives here in Madison to expand what they're able to do or the tiny house villages that have been very successful. I mean, there's a whole range of opportunities here. And the way that we do this is that we just, every year we put out a request for proposals and we see what the community has going on and how we could support that um, with the funding that we have in our capital budget. We're, We're really looking for creative and innovative ideas. In line with supporting the community, tell me about some of the uh, the business stimulus programs you've thrown into this capital budget. How are you looking to support Madison's business community as it continues coping with COVID-19 and the pandemic going forward? You know, one of the things that I think has been really important for our small business community has been the federal, state, county, and local funds that have helped them make it through the economic hits of COVID-19. We're helping others with uh, our commercial building ownership program, which helps them buy their storefronts if that's what they're looking to do. We also have our Healthy healthy Retail Access Program, which supports uh, food-oriented small businesses. And so we're increasing both of those uh, or all of those funds in the capital budget over the five-year capital improvement plan. Now, on the subject of local businesses, one of the other items I'd like to unpack here is funding for Madison's Bus Rapid Transit Project. That is a pretty significant chunk of this uh, of the of the city's capital budget and of its capital spending that's being partially offset with federal dollars. But that project has faced pushback from downtown business owners, mostly concentrated along State Street. Now, do you anticipate those criticisms popping up again in the city's budget deliberations? And how do you plan on addressing those concerns should they arise? You know, this has obviously been an ongoing conversation. I think everyone agrees that State Street is a a critical location for Madison, and frankly, that's why I think it deserves to have the best transit possible. What we know from other communities is that when you bring reliable rapid transit to an area, it increases business development, it increases property values, and it helps our economy. So that's really what we're trying to do with the Bus Rapid Transit Project throughout its reach 
And I think we're very lucky that the federal government agrees with us that this is a great project um, and has agreed to fund half of it. This is the largest infrastructure project that the city's ever done, and it's really critical that we keep it moving forward. So this budget does that. It also starts to plan for the north-south bus rapid transit line that I hope will allow us to get bus rapid transit to the airport, to the important neighborhoods on the south side and on the north side to make sure that we're really serving our entire community with excellent transit. On the subject of transportation, there's there's one relatively small item in here that sort of piqued my interest, and that is your proposal to float $120,000 to plan for train service to Madison via the Amtrak Connect uh, U.S. plan. Talk to me more about that initiative. So this is something that I'm very excited about. What we've seen is that Amtrak is, uh, you know, through their Connect U.S. plan, has included Madison on their map of places to expand to. I think many of us here in Madison have been eager to have uh, rail service that would connect us to Milwaukee, to Chicago, to the Twin Cities. Uh, I think this is a really important economic boost for our region to have passenger rail. And Amtrak agrees with us. And the funding for this plan is in the federal infrastructure bill. So hopefully Congress will pass that um, and uh, with the funding intact for Amtrak and that this funding in my capital budget is to help us get started uh, planning for a station here in Madison and to continue to work to connect the dots and hopefully actually bring passenger rail to Madison. Moving away from specific items in the, in the capital budget, both this year and last, you know, two budgets that are crafted during the COVID-19 pandemic, how difficult was it to zero in on proposals and ongoing items in the five-year capital improvement plan? You know, those are long-term projects, and I, I have to imagine the COVID pandemic was a financial wrench in the gears that no one could have predicted. Well, that's certainly right. It has been very difficult, um, and obviously the COVID-19 pandemic has had um, pretty severe economic impacts on the city. Um, our revenue sources have been down uh, fairly dramatically in a number of lines, and you know, we've had to cope with that. Nonetheless, you know, we need to keep investing in our infrastructure. We need to make sure that we're taking care of, you know, the basic services here in our city and making progress on the key priorities that I promised that I would deliver on. And that includes housing, transit, sustainability, and equity. And I think this budget does all of that. It is greatly benefited from federal investments uh, in addition to our local investments, but we do need to keep moving forward as we hopefully finally actually come out of the pandemic. Uh, it's important that we be poised um, to keep investing in our community um, in a way that's sustainable. Now, the capital budget is just one half of the city's overall budget, the capital budget and the capital improvement plan, combined with the operating budget. Now, the operating budget, your executive operating budget, will be coming here in the next few months. Now, I know you're still working on drafting that, but while I have you on the line, is there any preview of that budget you can give us? Well, the thing about the operating budget is that it's much more difficult than the capital budget. You know, the operating budget is um, the place where we have all of our, our people, all of our salaries, our community service programs, and it's frankly just a much more difficult budget to put together and to keep balanced. Um, it will be helped by the ARPA funding, no question. Um, and again, I'm really grateful to the president for providing that. But it is, it, we are right now going through the process of trying to figure out 
what cuts to make. Uh, it is a process of cutting every year because the legislature here in Wisconsin will not let us raise the revenue that we need just to continue providing the same services that we provided last year, much less do the new things that our community really needs. So this is a very difficult process, and I don't anticipate anyone really being happy about it at the end of the day, but we're going to do our best for our community. Mayor Rhodes-Conway, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to the record about your capital budget, about the capital improvement plan? Uh, Anything as we head into budgeting season this coming fall and winter, anything you think folks in Madison need to be aware of that we haven't touched on here today? Well, you know, this is a really critical piece of local government, right? Our budgets reflect our values and the commitment that we're making to the city to provide services. So I think it's important for folks to engage. I think if there is a top line on this capital budget, it is that we are delivering on our promises. We are focusing on affordable housing, on rapid transit, on combating climate change, and on trying to make our city a more equitable place for everyone so that everyone can thrive. I've been joined on the other end of the line by Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. Mayor Rhodes-Conway, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We recognize International Overdose Awareness Day. Wildlife Weekly explains what animals in rehabilitation need to eat. And Radio Astronomy gazes through the murky expanse of cosmic dust clouds. But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Today on August 31st marks International Overdose Awareness Day. The annual event commemorates those lost to drug overdoses and it comes after a difficult year for Wisconsin's recovery support organizations. According to preliminary data from the state's Department of Health Services, Opioid overdoses increased from 916 in 2019 to more than 1,200 expected cases for 2020. Now, as the Delta variant of COVID-19 surges across Wisconsin, local recovery aid groups are preparing for that trend to continue. For more, WRT producer Jonah Chester spoke with Tanya Craigie, a recovery coach project manager at Safe Communities of Madison. So more than 16 months into the COVID-19 pandemic, can you give me an idea of how Madison's recovery support initiatives are doing at the moment? How are y'all faring over at Safe Communities and and across the board and other recovery organizations across town? Oh, oh, I think that's a really loaded question. So the, the first thought feeling that I have when answering that is we are exhausted this this world that we live in now, I, I refer to it when I'm talking with my team quite often, is the world is, is on fire. So going into the pandemic, we were already struggling with the opioid epidemic. And I think and believe that we were making some headway in reducing the number of deaths that our communities were seeing. 
through, you know, harm reduction efforts and other initiatives. But the pandemic brought about uh, a whole new set of challenges uh, for our team. And so I started to see, we started to see that the numbers are pretty close for 2021 to being even a little bit greater than the number of lives lost in 2018 when we were at the height of the, the opioid epidemic. So I think that, again, we're a lot of us, I think, working in the behavioral health field are operating on, on similar budgets, but the need for the support and the services is greater than it was even going into the pandemic. I've observed, and, and many people on my team have observed similar things, that people who may have had long-term recovery found themselves alone or isolated, not having as much access to services that they might have relied on for keeping themselves healthy, and then they returned uh, back to use. In doing so, the trauma response, right, of being in this time of uncertainty and not feeling safe and not having um, a prediction of what things were going to look like kind of created this whole new wave of I don't know what to do with myself and I don't know how to be in my body and I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And so I choose the thing closest to myself, which is oftentimes, you know, the grocery store where you can buy alcohol or you, you know, return to old friends that you know might not have been being as safe and they sometimes happen to have the things on on them or the substances on them that that might help uh, reduce those feelings of uncertainty and and help kind of numb people out. So we're definitely seeing an increase in services. Uh, The number of referrals that Safe Communities has observed from last year into this year has, has almost doubled in the amount of referrals. And so that definitely makes for, for a busy team. Um, and we're still being creative on how we're meeting up with people in the community. Mostly we have gone back to in large part, you know, the person who's moving and the person um, in the, in the vehicle, everybody's masked up despite, you know, vaccinated status still operating in large part over the phone or telehealth if people are open to that. Um, But we know that that connection is so important, that sharing of energy between two people who have either, you know, experienced in the past or are currently experiencing um, challenges in their life to be able to, to share space and talk about things in a different way than maybe over the phone or or over um, a Zoom meeting or a Doxy.me meeting. So, As we continue to cope with the surging Delta coronavirus variant, are you anticipating those calls for services to increase in the coming weeks? Uh, We are planning for uh, the number of referrals to increase. We definitely have the staff on, you know, available for that. The the challenge is always, you know, funding. So, um, you know, and I can't speak for, you know, partners in the community that are doing similar work, but I do know that the pandemic has, created shortages across the board for funding. So sort of in line with that, what steps would you like to see local and state officials take to support recovery aid programs such as yourself? Is it just increased funding like you mentioned, or is there more that legislators in the state capitol and here in Madison can do to support your work? Well, I think that it's always in social services. For me, what I've observed is you know, funding's always a thing, like give us more funding for behavioral health and, you know, those services to include mental health and substance use disorders. I, I think we continue to, to be kind of the, the afterthought 
particularly I think peer support um, being an evidence-based service is sometimes an afterthought to programs. And so the increase in funding is helpful, but also getting legislation in place that would allow places, agencies, or, or businesses to bill out um, privately or as a fee-for-service directly to Medicaid so that these services can be funded under the Medicaid programs. Um, and then also, you know, advocating that private insurance carriers or commercial insurance carriers pick up the type of work that we're doing as well and start funding that through their streams. So do you feel that the pandemic just sort of laid bare the lack of funding and support that a lot of social service service organizations across Wisconsin were experiencing before? I think there was multiple things occurring. One was many places where you could have received services during the pandemic were not accessible to people. We didn't want to be one of those places that wasn't accessible, so we wanted to continue to show up as best as we can while also keeping our staff and the vulnerable populations that we get to work with safe as well. So there were some hard decisions that had to be made, Um, and so now we try to just be just as creative, which peer support is unique in the way that we can meet people like where they're at physically in the community. So we can go meet with somebody in the park or in an open area and still be able to safely social distance. So I think that that was, you know, one challenge that you really couldn't get access to services. The second one is you have more people that maybe realize um, I need more support after going through this. Like I, I, had stuff come up for me that has never come up for me before because I was never really forced to, you know, be in my house and and be with me and my thoughts and feelings. And so I need to be able to process this with somebody like a professional. And so there's more people reaching out saying, I need, you know, a therapist or I started drinking more than I've ever drank before because day drinking became a thing on social media like TikTok where it was like, oh, well, I'm working from home and now I can have a drink at noon because I'm not in the office. And so it became kind of like a, a, you know, acceptable way to get through the day. And so people are realizing like, maybe that wasn't so acceptable. I now have a problem with drinking that I didn't maybe have before. And so people are reaching out for services to say, hey, like, I'm, I need support in, in stopping my alcohol consumption that has increased during the time of the pandemic. And then you have the people that already needed services before the pandemic struggling to essentially compete to get into the same services that all other people are needing. And then other people coming out of maybe long-term substance use that needed the services or want the services are also vying for the same services. Tanya, thank you so much for joining me today. Before I let you go, I have uh, one final question. I understand y'all at Safe Communities are organizing an event this evening. I believe it'll actually be ongoing as this as this is being broadcast on our 6 o'clock news tonight. We're recording this ahead of time. Tell me more about what you have planned for your event this evening. Oh, thanks for asking. So today, August 31st, every year is International Overdose Awareness Day. So it's the one day that we get to set aside and grieve, you know, as a community, as multiple communities coming together and and honoring and acknowledging the pain of all the loved ones that we've lost from drug poisonings. This is Safe Community's fourth year at doing it at Oldbrook. We usually start handing out flags about a month before the event where people can come and stop by our office. 
pick up a, a white flag, and then we have fabric markers that we let people use, or you can take it home and decorate it and either put it out at Old Rick where we have the flags displayed, or they can bring it back to the office and then we have our formal day where we bring out all the flags and put them on display, which currently is a week before the today's event, that we you can bring those flags in and we can put them out there for you. Tonight we have speakers. We have uh, the Reverend Judge Everett Mitchell. Uh, he will be speaking tonight. We also have um, Charles Tubbs speaking and um, Monte Ball Jr. speaking, as well as some peer providers. Um, and they will be speaking to you know the community's challenges, as well as honoring those lost before us. And then we will have a, a memory walk through the flags with candles and a silent vigil. There will also be a shaved ice vehicle mobile, and uh, as well as eating pizza. Tanya, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Tanya Craigie is the Recovery Coach Project Manager at Safe Communities of Madison. A healthy diet is important for a healthy lifestyle. That's true for both humans and animals. And this week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg examines the dietary needs of animals that are being rehabilitated. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about different wildlife diets and some of their nutritional needs. We have so many different animals that we work with as rehabilitators that sometimes it feels like it can be hard to memorize or even keep track of what is important and critical in their husbandry while they're recovering from an injury or from sickness. So as a rehabilitator that works with a whole variety of different animals, we see mammals, we see birds, we see reptiles, and those are going to be your most common. We also work with some amphibians and other animals like snakes and a whole bunch of other species. When you think of avian, you know, we're talking songbirds, which has a high level of diversity in their diets. Uh, But then we also work with raptors, and we know that raptors are going to be primarily carnivorous, right? So, you know, that's going to be an all-protein-based or meat-based diet. Um, So trying to keep them all in track can be difficult, but as rehabilitators, we've really done a lot of research to figure out um, what are the nutritional requirements for certain species, how much and how many calories do they actually need, and what about factors that would maybe alter that? You know, if you kind of think of it as a range, if you had an injury yourself, let's say you went to the hospital because you broke a bone, we think of things like extra calcium, right? So that calcium supplementation might be really important to be able to uh, regain that structure for a callus to form in the bone. So it's same for us when we have, you know, a large bird like a raptor that might have a fractured leg. Uh, Sure, we might be providing it with its most natural diet possible if we can. Uh, Usually that might be something that we have to order, such as frozen uh, feeder rodents or mice or rat, uh, sometimes rabbit and other species that they might find naturally out in the wild. But we really need to make sure that it has the adequate amount of calcium. We think of things like venison that's donated a lot of times to wildlife rehabilitators. Well, if you fed an eagle just strictly venison, for example, even though we know it's a favorite food, it's just the meat. So you're missing out on the bone and the fur and other things that might help aid and alter their digestive tract. And so you can't create a problem 
where there wasn't one before by making an animal vitamin uh, deficient. So uh, raptors is definitely a common one where we think to ourselves, well, sure, you might want to give this particular diet, but maybe we need to vary it up with different types of food, unless they're a specialist, which in our case right now at the Dane County Humane Society, we have an osprey in care, and that is a pisciferous bird, meaning that they strictly only eat fish, or at least 99% of their diet is fish and certain types of fish. So, you know, if they're a specialist like that, you do have to go with that type of dietary requirement um, because otherwise they won't really eat the food you're giving them. But we know that when you're giving a fish-based diet, we have to supplement with uh, different vitamins or oils or nutrients to make sure that they're getting adequate vitamins than they would otherwise be getting from a live fish that they would catch from a local lake or a stream. So, for example, with fish-eating species, we know that a dead fish is going to lack thiaminase or uh, when we've got thiamine deficiencies or vitamin A or vitamin B deficiencies or vitamin E deficiencies. These are all different things that we worry about and have to add extra either tablets or oils into their fish in hopes that they will be able to uh, regain that uh, as if it, they had caught that natural fish that would have given them that proper nutrition. For our songbird species, we're seeing varieties from granivores, meaning they just eat seeds, to omnivores eating a wide variety of different things out in the wild, and they actually have a very high diversity of food that they obtain for themselves. Or we see a high category of insectivores, meaning that they're feeding on worms or insects primarily, but there's so many different ways that they are obtaining that. So we have our aerial insectivores flying around and catching food on the wing and opening their mouths and catching dragonflies and moths and mosquitoes and other species that fly. But the maybe the tree creeping insectivores are so much different because those are your woodpeckers crawling up the trees and tapping and finding insects under the bark. Uh, maybe they're sap suckers uh, drinking sap from trees. And then maybe other insectivores are like robins, where we call them ground foragers, and they're getting redworms out of the ground or earthworms. So again, knowing that about that species allows us to provide that in-house for our diets. We also have frugivores, which right now at this time of year, it's very common for us to have cedar waxwings and they eat lots and lots of berries. So we're providing with elderberries and mulberries and, you know, we have to do store-bought raspberries and blueberries and other things that might naturally kind of grow around in our area um, so that they can identify them out in the wild. But it also provides that extra vitamin C or ascorbic acid that is really important for them to be able to, again, uh, not come down with any sort of extra problem that wasn't there prior to rehabilitation. We don't want to see a vitamin A deficiency for those granivores that are eating mostly seed. There's a, a lot of cases that show vitamin A deficiency, for example, can cause problems like swollen eyes. If over time you're seeing that and maybe stargazing kind of behavior, they're not really acting normally, uh, their eyes are puffed up, maybe there's some nasal discharge or eye discharge, like sometimes that can just be like, a, ooh, you know, vitamin A deficiency we realize we weren't giving enough. So how do we combat that in rehabilitation? For our songbird species, we actually give them a very carefully designed uh, paste and oil supplement that we actually make up every day with lots of different things. It's uh, actually, uh, we follow a recipe that was uh, written by a rehabilitator out in California, primarily works with aerial insectivores. So our primary resource is uh, Veronica Bowers, who wrote a book on, on avian nutrition, um, or at least uh, contributed to the writing. And so there's lots of those great educational research resources out there so that you can figure out, okay, as a rehabilitator, let's say you want to work with this particular species. What do they eat? How much do they need? What is their weight in body weight? How many calories would they need to sustain 
metabolic processes and then a compensate for an injury or growth or other factors? And then what do I need to supplement if I'm providing them with food that isn't going to be live or fresh or something they'd obtain out in the wild? Those are your big three things that you're thinking about when you're working with an animal. Um, and then over time, you get to write protocols and write recipes and kind of figure out what other people have done and keep following the research so that you can add and change it as needed so that you're giving the best care possible to that animal while it's recovering. So that's a little bit about diets and nutrition for uh, like avian species, for example, but there's so much more you could talk about. You could get into the nitty gritty about all different species and what they eat and what they need. Uh, but those were some of the more common things that we were thinking about and what we're uh, dealing with on an everyday basis. So I hope you enjoyed this segment. Uh, please give us a call if you find an animal in need of help or that's sick or injured. Our number is 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On the surface, dust is not particularly thrilling, but if you were to concentrate an inconceivable amount of dust into a single area, let's say a corner of the Milky Way, then things start to get interesting. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Dan Rabarczyk presents a masterclass in cosmic dust. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Dan Rabarczyk. Today, I'll be telling you about new observations of the California molecular cloud. A molecular cloud is the name astronomers use to describe giant collections of gas and dust in galaxies. These structures are denser than most of the rest of gas in galaxies. Some parts of molecular clouds become so dense that they collapse under their own gravity, which causes the gas to heat up and eventually results in the formation of a new star. And in fact, molecular clouds give birth not just to one star, but to thousands or hundreds of thousands or even more stars. The California molecular cloud is 1,530 light years away. That's about 9,000 trillion miles away, or 97 million times farther away from us than the sun. But in astronomy, that actually turns out to be quite close. The California molecular cloud so named because its shape resembles that of the state of California, is one of the closest molecular clouds to the sun. This makes it an optimal candidate for studying because it's much easier to observe 
than molecular clouds, say, on the other side of the galaxy that are more than 10 or 20 times farther away. This week, a group of astronomers released a paper detailing new observations of the internal structure of the California molecular cloud that offer important insights into how molecular clouds form stars. And why does anybody care? Well, star formation is one of the most important processes in the entire universe, driving the evolution of galaxies and leading to the formation of solar systems, including our own. So this kind of work helps us understand where we come from in a cosmic sense. So the group used a radio telescope to look at three different varieties of the same molecule, carbon monoxide. And while this molecule can be poisonous to humans on Earth, it plays an important role in molecular clouds. It's very common, and it's easy to observe with radio telescopes. Astronomers call it CO because it's made of one carbon atom and one oxygen atom, C and O. But carbon and oxygen aren't always exactly the same. A small fraction of carbon and oxygen atoms are heavier than average. And astronomers can easily differentiate CO that is made with these heavier versions of carbon and oxygen. It turns out that these heavier variants are observed more in the denser parts of molecular clouds. So observing ordinary CO can tell you what the entire molecular cloud looks like, while observing the heavier variants can tell you where the gas is densest. And what astronomers found this past week in the California molecular cloud was that denser gas is found predominantly in a long filament that runs through the entire molecular cloud, kind of like a backbone. Moreover, along the filament are many very small and dense cores of gas, which are known to be the precursors to stars. So this confirms observations of other molecular clouds and some theories of star formation, which suggests that filamentary structure in molecular clouds is important to the star formation process. The idea is that when converging flows of gas meet along the filament, then the gas can become dense enough to begin the star formation process, which explains why these dense gas precursors to stars are found along the filament in California. So even though star formation is one of the most important processes in the universe, it still isn't fully understood. But these new observations, which trace gas at all different densities in the same molecular cloud, are helping to reveal what conditions are necessary for star formation to get underway. The California molecular cloud, our galactic neighbor, is then elucidating one of the most important processes in the entire universe. Well, that's all for Radio Astronomy today. Have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Nate Weggyhot. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and the Radio Astronomy crew. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish language news with Anuestro Patio. Good night.